Uh, good day. My name is Andrew, and I'm in second year studying genetics and environmental science. Uh, I'm, going to I'm going to be reading the Bible for us today, uh, and we're continuing on from where we left off last week in Hebrews. So uh, you'll find in your booklet as you came in uh, that we're reading Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, to chapter 3, verse 6. Um, here at CU, we love reading the Bible. I think it's one of the best things we do. Because we believe that the Bible is the word of God. And by reading it, we can learn more about God and the things that he's done for us. And we can grow in our relationship with him. So uh, it will be great if you follow along. Uh, this is Hebrews chapter 2, starting at verse 5. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again he says, here I am, and the children of God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who, are, who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he, suffered, he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house. And we are his house, 
if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, my name's Tim. If we haven't met, it's great to be with you. I'm one of the staff workers with the Christian Union, and uh, we'll be looking at this passage in Hebrews 2 and 3. You might find the outline helpful. Just while I set up a PowerPoint, uh, can I give you just a little bit of time that if you want to fill out either the small group sign-up or the equip sign-up, uh, just do that now. On the small group sign-up, one side is for first years, the other side for upper years. So just sort of... Uh, if you see that the top, we'll work out which one is applicable for you. Yes, and you can talk to the person next year. That's fine. If you want to eat your lunch, feel free. Okay, back to Hebrews chapter 2. The passage and the outline is on your handout. At the very heart of Christianity is a conviction that God became a human. In the first century AD, if you'd walked around Palestine and Galilee, sometimes in Jerusalem, you would have met somebody who was God become human, the Son of God become real flesh and blood. And the passage we're looking at today answers the question, but why? Why would he do that? Was he bored with his life? Was he ignorant of what was going on on earth and he wanted to come and have a look? Why did God become human? And this passage gives us some very clear and I think very interesting and helpful answers. The idea of God's becoming humans is not in itself completely unique to Christianity. There are stories of Roman gods and Greek gods who supposedly travelled around looking like mortal men and women. It was sort of like for them a way of getting involved in human affairs of every sort. Did anybody get that? (laughs) Good, because that's actually what happened. And I guess a little bit like our superheroes, the movies we've got now, they're gods that sort of make out they're humans. Maybe they're hybrids who sort of switch between them. Sometimes they're mere journalists and other times they change their clothes and they become gods, superheroes of some sort. Now on the surface, Christianity seems a bit similar to that. God wraps himself in a human body. He appears to show us God's love and show us how we ought to live. But actually... The Christian understanding of what happened when God became a man, God became a human, is quite different to that. The the word that Christians use is incarnation, becoming enfleshed. You see it there in verse 14, not with that word, but the same ideas. Since the children, that is us, share in, have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. He became flesh and blood like us. That's what we're talking about. Not a mere appearance of being human, an an illusion, like I might put on the clothes of of a policeman. I'm not really a policeman, I've just put the clothes on, I'll take them off again. But actually a human. So you can imagine if I wanted to communicate with ants. 
I could, in my imagination at least, contemplate, well, I'll sort of become an ant for a little while and go and live in an ant's nest and maybe I can be successful in communicating with ants. But that's not what the incarnation of Jesus was like. And Christmas should demolish that idea if you've got it. Remember Christmas? Because at Christmas, Jesus was a baby, a real life Arabic-looking baby from the Middle East. He didn't become an adult human. Like, if I was going to become an ant, I'd just become a, an ant, fully grown. But Jesus didn't come like that, just appearing to be human. He, he was actually born as a baby. A few years ago, Rosemary and I often sort of design our own Christmas cards. A few years ago, we had a Christmas card that looked a bit like this. Only for Rosemary. What's your, what's your answer? That's the answer, isn't it? Jesus became real flesh. Not cow, but flesh and blood. Real tissue, real muscle, real blood, real veins, real brain. He became a real human. The incarnation, God the Son... And last week, the passage showed us how much he was God the Son. He wasn't just a, a human brought up to be like God. He, from all eternity, was God the Son. He didn't just clothe himself with a human body for a while and discard it later. He became flesh. He, he was a fetus that grew and was born down the birth canal, was suckled at a breast, was, well, he soiled his nappy, he learned how to crawl and walk and talk, he scraped his knees, he blew his nose. Jesus was and is God the Son, and he became real flesh and blood human. Not a pretend human, not God in camouflage, but a real human. Now, for someone like me who's an engineer, my question is how? How could that happen? In the first four centuries, especially of Christian history, after Jesus, that was one of the big questions they tried to struggle with. Was Jesus sort of half God, half man? Was he an amalgam? so that maybe he had a human body and, and a soul of God? Or was he someone who moved backwards and forwards between them? How can the creator become the creature? The other way doesn't work at all, does it? The creature can't become its own creator. But is it possible for the creator to become a creature? And actually, yes, it, that is possible. I think part of the answer is in the idea, the reality, that God created humans in his own image. No, when God became human, he didn't become a hybrid. He became one integral person. But there's a bigger question than how. There's a more important question than how, and that's the question, why? Why did God become a human? Last week, we actually saw the first part of an answer to that. Why did God become a human? Why did God the Son become one of us? It was so that God could speak to us clearly. In the olden days, God spoke through intermediaries, prophets and others who would get a message from God and pass it on. And, well, you listened to the prophet, but they were just a prophet. They were just one of you. But then God spoke by his son. And when he speaks by his son, it's actually God speaking. It's not an intermediary. It's not someone passing on a message. When Jesus spoke, God was speaking. When Jesus acted, God was acting. You could know God clearly because the son is the exact image of of the, of the invisible God, tangible to us, so that we can know God by revelation. 
But in this chapter we get a second reason, and actually a more important reason, one that's more significant for the writer. It's so that, you see in verse 17, for this reason he, the son, had to be made like them, that is us humans, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. This is to do with redemption, rescuing us humans. That's why he becomes a high priest, an intermediary between us and God. He's both God and man, so he can bridge the gap between humanity and God. And he can make atonement for our sins. And the book of Hebrews really just expands those two ideas. We're going to explore them uh, for a couple of weeks now and then later in semester about the high priesthood of Jesus and the atonement of Jesus. So today is really just a taster. We'll start to get an idea of what uh, the writer is on about. And the main idea in this chapter is that Jesus died as an atonement for our sins. Not just a revelation of God, he is that, but especially to rescue us, to redeem us. But if you say he came to rescue us, it implies we have some sort of predicament. If I come and knock on your door at home and say, I'm here to rescue you, I presume you'll slam the door and say, I'm not in trouble. Or maybe you, you think, I've got some credibility. What is my trouble? Please tell me. What did Jesus come to rescue us from? Well, in this chapter, we get an outline of our situation, the stark difference between where we started and where we are now. Where we started is outlined in verse 6. There's a place where someone says, it's actually Psalm 8 in the Old Testament, what is mankind that you're mindful of them, the son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than angels, you crowned them with glory and honour and put everything under their feet. Here's a bit more of Psalm 8. The psalmist, I presume, had this experience of maybe on a, on a moonless night, he's out camping in the bush somewhere, and he looks up and he just sees all the stars spread across the heavens. And he feels very, very small. You know, I'm a speck of dust on the third rock from a star, which is on the edge of the Milky Way, which is one of the smaller uh, galaxies in this vast universe. I, I'm a nothing. Have you ever had that feeling? I'm a nothing, and yet God has crowned us humans, all seven billion of us, with glory and honour. He's, he's put this crown on it and he said, I want you to rule the universe. That's what happened back in the creation. Adam and Eve were made to rule like God so they could subdue and, and, and enjoy and rule over this world that God had created. And the psalmist says, that is stunning. That blows my mind that God would do that. But he says, that's not what we see now. The end of verse 8. At present, we don't see everything subject to humanity. We're supposed to rule. But actually, we're now slaves. And he describes some of that slavery in verses 14 and 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, over us that is, which is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery to their fear of death. Slaves, that's what we are now, cowering in fear of death. Under the power of death. Now that may not have hit you hard recently. But the reality is we'll each live maybe 70 years, if you're really lucky, maybe 90 years. And then your life and my life will be snuffed out. 
And every now and then the reality of that pokes into our lives. It, it crashes through when we have a near-death experience or a loved one dies and we think, that's me too. And the natural response to that is fear, isn't it? And there's an instinctive fear, our survival instinct. Someone pokes a gun at my head. I want to live. I don't want to die. I want to stop it, whatever happens. But it's deeper than that, isn't it? Even for the most secular Australians, death is a sort of taboo subject. We talk about passing as if you just passed in the night. We talk about gone home as if death is home. But there's that persistent dread of the unknown. But those of us who know there is a God, that there's going to be a day of assessment, our lives will come under scrutiny, death is a clear sign that we're under condemnation. We don't deserve to live. Condemnation because of the evil that we've done and its consequences. And that's why the writer introduces the devil at this point as an active player in our death. So it's not that the devil is running around putting a gun to your head saying, I want to kill you, scare the living daylights out of you. No, what's happened is that the devil, right back at the beginning and then day by day in the life of every human, he induces us to rebel against God, our creator. Remember what he said to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? It doesn't matter. It'll be okay. Wouldn't it be nice to be independent of God and his rule over your life? And once we jump on board, once we sin, that's when he's really got us. His devious clutches around our neck. His name, the devil, is Satan. And Satan means the accuser. Because his main occupation is throwing our sin into God's lap. Now, I'm condemned for my own actions. I did it, but the devil ensures that it's carried through to my death and my eternal death. If you've sinned, if you've done any evil, and that's all of us, isn't it? Then the devil has you. Like he's got me. I, I, I can't escape. <laughs> the ruler of, uh, of Psalm 8, the one who's supposed to rule the universe, has been reduced to a blubbering slave, paralysed by fear. Do you feel that? Most of us will one day, if you haven't felt it yet. We're sort of like the world championship cricket team, reduced to nine wickets down for 20 runs, when the total we've got to get to is 300. Or soccer team who's losing 6-0 and it's only 10 minutes into the game. We need a saviour, we need a hero, someone who can change the situation. That's why Jesus became human. And so you see it mentioned first in verse 9. He suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everybody. He becomes a real human in order to taste death. Because only a real human can die for us. God can't die. He's immortal. But the God-man can die. And that's how real his incarnation was. Not to die a martyr's death, but to die a saviour's death. And so in this chapter, the writer spells out some of the ways in which Jesus' death changes our situation. And that's really his main point. That it was... Uh, an atonement for sin. That's how he says it in verse 17, to make atonement for the sins of the people. Now, that implies something. It implies that there's a penalty for evil that needs atoning for. And, and the word he uses is quite a technical word. It means to remove the consequences of evil by appeasing the anger of God at our evil. Now, some of you might sort of sit up and say, oh, whoa, Tim, 
Uh, God angry? Uh, I'm sure God is a God of love. That's what I've been told. That's what I'm convinced of. Yes, absolutely. But it's because he's a God of love that he's a God of anger. Uh, Some of you may have been listening to the news over the last two or three years when the Royal Commission into the sexual abuse of children by institutions has been going on. And person after person has fronted the, the commission, has been questioned, and it's revealed terrible sexual abuse against children by churches, by clergy, by scouts, by almost every institution in Australia. Now, what's been your reaction? If you've got any love at all for the victims, you'll be angry, won't you? Really angry that it's happened, that people in positions of power and trust have abused those positions to abuse children. And they've then covered it up. If you're not angry, something is wrong with you. And God, too, is angry at our evil because he loves, because he cares. And Jesus tasted death, drank to the dregs the anger of his father, the punishment that we deserve. The second picture is back in verse 14 and 15, to liberate us from our slavery, our slavery to death and the fear of death. Because if his death was an atonement for our sin, then forgiveness is available. It can be ours, our record expunged before God completely, wiped clean, instead of being condemned, welcome and accepted forever. Now that is liberty, liberty writ large. Physical death might still be a reality, but no longer we're no longer petrified by death and what comes after it, but instead death Confident that death becomes the door into eternal life. And in doing so, Jesus breaks the power of the devil. Verse 14 sounds a little bit uh, sort of like superheroes having a big match off, doesn't it? Jesus destroyed, uh, sorry, he uh, breaks the power of the one who holds the power of death. Pictures Satan as having power in his grasp, and Jesus comes along and he breaks that power. You can sort of imagine maybe they had a, a, an arm wrestle. And they strained to try, and and in the end, Jesus managed to be stronger. But that's not the picture that he paints. It's actually very different. The way in which he breaks the power of the devil is not by doing that, it's by disarming the devil. What power does the devil have? Well, his power really is only to accuse you, to deceive you, and then accuse you, to throw your evil back in your face and into God's lap. And what does Jesus do? He atones for our sins. So no matter what accusation Satan might throw at us, and there's all sorts he could throw. You could throw lots at me as well if you wanted to. They're all there. They're in my record. But every time Satan throws an accusation, Jesus stands up and says, I died for that. And Satan is silenced. You might bring another accusation and Jesus just says, I died for that. Satan is powerless. And even when Satan wins, when he tempts me to sin and I go for it and I do it and I fall, he loses. Because Jesus died for that too. He can't win. He's been disarmed. His power has evaporated. And so back in verse 10, the writer calls Jesus the pioneer of our salvation. The forerunner, the one who who goes and does it. It also has the sense of being the champion of our salvation. That fits the context quite well. Do you know the story of David and Goliath? 
Most people know that story if they've had any sort of church background. It's the story about 1000 BC um, where Israel is having a, a, a war with the Philistines and the two armies line up each side of the valley. But before they actually fight each other, the Philistines put out their champion, Goliath, who's a giant, a real giant of a man. And he says, give me one of your champions and we'll fight. And whoever wins, their side wins. Now, it's a really bizarre way to do war, isn't it? Like, it doesn't happen very often. We throw whole armies and navies in. We don't just say, who's the strongest man in Australia? You can go and fight against the strongest man in New Zealand. But we, we sort of do do it. Hunger Games is like that, isn't it? Somebody represents their district and they go to fight for them. Our sporting teams are much like that. If the Dockers win, well, I lose, you win. <laughs> our, our teams represent us. Well, that's the idea here, like David and Goliath. Jesus is our champion. He goes into battle against the devil and he wipes the floor with him. Again, though, don't think of it as out-muscling him. He does it by dying. He does it by becoming one of us in the weakness of human flesh and submitting to crucifixion, dying in our place. In order to, in verse 11, make us holy. Make us pure and sinless before God now and for eternity. And in verse 10, to lead us to glory. He's crowned with glory and honour. Um, sorry, uh, verse 10, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory. That is, what Jesus is doing is not leaving us cowering as a slave, but returning us in the world to come to be glorious rulers with him. Restore us. We experienced some of that already. Liberty from Satan and his accusations and some victory, but we'll experience in its fullness in the age to come. So, why did God become human? Why did God the Son become one of us? It's drastic. It's bizarre. It's unique in all of history. He did it, says the writer, to save us by his death. But you might say, why did he have to become human to save us by his death? Surely he could do it another way. Surely... Surely he could just snap his fingers and Satan would get crushed. Yes, absolutely. It's not that Satan is really a rival to God. God could smash him with a word. But if he did that, we'd be left imprisoned, still in our own sin. Let me give you an analogy and see if it helps you understand it. When I was in primary school, we had a playground bully. And he was a bully mainly because he was bigger than the rest of us and could throw his weight around reasonably well. And so he basically ran a protection racket in the playground. He would come and if he wanted anything out of your play lunch, out of your lunchbox or whatever, he'd just say, I'm taking it. And if you tried to resist, he'd say, watch out, I'll bash you up. And so we became slaves of fear to him. He ruled the playground. Whatever he wanted, he got. Now, the teachers knew about it, but there wasn't a lot they could do. <laughs> sure, they could put him on detention, they could even put him on detention for all of the lunchtime hours. What would happen? Well, he'd just do it after school, outside the school playground, and still get away with it. We're still in fear. They could, I guess, put, you know, just cancel all lunchtimes, which would not be very good for, for the rest of us. And then one day, a new kid turned up at school. Seemed just normal, like me or you, he's in my class. And the bully tried the standover tactics with him. He said, come on, I want that, give it to me, or else... 
And the new kid didn't acquiesce. He stood up to him and said, no. There was a fight and the new kid won. And when he won, we all won. See, the power of the bully was broken. Broken for all of us. We did nothing. It was the new kid who did it all. But he could only do it because he was one of us. He was an insider. And because he was an insider, his victory was our victory. His rescue rescued us. And so with Jesus, he became one of us to rescue us. That's what it took to be an insider, to win for us. We did nothing, but we gained from his victory. He defeats Satan by not by flexing his muscles, but by meekly dying, tasting death for you and me, so that Satan was left with nothing, nothing at all, and we are rescued spectacularly. So that's why, to rescue us. But the second reason, which we saw at the beginning in the other order, was to become our high priest. You could say, this is what happens with Jesus. He was God the Son. He shared our humanity, died our death, and was raised to glory in order to raise us to glory as well. But he also came as our high priest. Now, what makes a good priest? Well, a priest is an intermediary between us and God who represents God to us and us to God. And Jesus is the perfect, the ideal priest because he's both. He can represent God to us because he's divine. He can represent us to God because he's one of us. But there's actually more to it. See in verse 18, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Well, back in verse 10, it was fitting that God, through whom uh, everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. See, Jesus' incarnation meant he really suffered. He suffered real pain. There were nerves that connected with his brain and caused the sort of pain that you and I experience. He was tempted and tested, especially by his suffering. Because suffering always tempts our trust in God. We're, We're tempted to give up on God and lose ourselves in bitterness and self-pity. And so he becomes the complete high priest, not just an adequate high priest, not even a good high priest, not just better than others, not even the best high priest, but the best possible high priest, the complete high priest. You can't get anybody better. You can't imagine a better high priest. But he wouldn't have been that without becoming one of us, experiencing life as we experience it. There's going to be much more about that in Hebrews, so keep coming back because it really is wonderful to contemplate. So, back to our opening question. Why did God become man? Why did the Son of God take on real human flesh? Well, verse 17 says it, doesn't it? He had to be made like us. It was necessary in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Our complete salvation, forgiven permanently. No more fearing death. We can blow raspberries at Satan and know he can't come back. And we have a brother in heaven, our high priest, Jesus, who mediates us to God. That's so different to something like Islam. Islam has Muhammad, who is just a man, just telling us to try harder and who dies. He can't rescue us from death. 
He himself died and stayed dead. But Jesus is so different. He's in a different league. So what do we do with this? Well, that's what chapter 3 says. What do you do? Well, this isn't about, here's an application. Go and do it. Go and be different today. No, it's something a little more real and foundational. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, verse 1, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. Fix your thoughts. Reflectively contemplate Jesus. Keep in your consciousness in an ongoing way. Like you fix your thoughts on your studies. Doesn't mean you never think about anything else, but your thoughts come back to it again and again and again. If you're not yet a Christian, not yet saved by Jesus, can I encourage you from what we've seen today to take Jesus seriously? Uniquely, God the Son becoming one of us, like you, to reveal God to you and to save you from death. You fear death? So you should. But Jesus can save you from that. That's much better than just dropping a bundle of rules for you to live, isn't it? He does something about our situation. If you're unsure whether that's true, please explore it. We'd love to help you do that. Just mention it to a Christian friend. If you are a Christian, what's the danger for us? Well, the danger is in verse 6. We're his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. The one is, we've got to hold firmly because we might drift away. And back in chapter 2, he's used the image that, you know, sometimes you see a, a, a boat that comes up to a jetty and no one bothers to tie it up. You know what happens to that boat? It just gradually drifts away from the jetty. No one pushes it. No one decides to drift away. It just sort of happens in life. And that's what the writer is warning us against. Because to drift away from Jesus, well, it's crazy, isn't it? It would be like not bothering to turn up at your own wedding because you got distracted playing games. That's just crazy, isn't it? And so he encourages to positive action. Keep your thoughts on Jesus. Keep him in your mind. Keep him in your consciousness. And in a sense, that's part of what CU's about. At uni, we want to help each other keep Jesus in our consciousness, lest we drift away. And especially we need to do it when the fear of death and condemnation bites. And it does bite. Here and there, now and then, Somebody accuses us, somebody dies. We have one of those near-death experiences, especially then we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Would you pray with me? Jesus, it blows our mind that you became one of us, a mere human, because we really were in trouble. But thank you. And we ask that you'd help us to keep our eyes on you, Uh, not looking away, uh, not drifting away, but keep you central in our lives. Amen.